you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. Citizen Kane is a modern American story about a man called Kane, Charles Foster Kane. I don't know how to tell you about him. There's so many things to say. I'll turn you over instead to the characters in the picture. As you'll see, they feel very strongly on the subject. Charles Foster Kane is... Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist! Kane, governor. Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learn what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. I'm going to marry him next week at the White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. I... Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest man in America. But all the girls say about him at first, but you know, I can't help but admire him. He's crazy. He's wonderful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. Right, welcome everybody to the second episode of the Essential Films Podcast. Uh, this is the second episode because there was actually a first episode uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, I'm only now just getting to uh, episode number two, but I promise uh, this should be a much more regular series going forward. Uh, life kind of got in the way there, and I was not able to continue doing it. Plus, I also, after uh, listening to the show the first time, uh, was not really digging the whole one-person podcasting style. So I brought in a friend of mine, a good buddy of mine, who you'll, you'll meet in just a minute, uh, who is also on another excellent podcast, uh, co-starring yours truly, uh, called Force Perspective. Uh, and that is my buddy Mark. Mark, are you there? Yes, sir. What's going on, man? What's going on? So this is The Essential Films. Uh, this This podcast is dedicated to... Kind of the canon classics, the 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 film school uh, syllabus kind of movies that you all hear about. Uh, last last episode we talked to, or I talked about Casablanca. This episode we'll be talking about the one and only Citizen Kane. Um, but it, it, before we get to that, um, a little bit of a, an introduction to those who missed the first episode or who, who are just tuning in for the first time. Now I'm Adolfo. Uh, I'm a longtime movie cinephile. Uh, I, I went. I did study film in, in college. Uh, I sort of work in production now, not quite filmmaking, but I, I do have a production uh, uh, professional job now. Uh, and uh, I, I'm a I'm a movie reviewer, and I blog about movies, and that's what I like to do. Uh, Mark, why don't you tell them about your your uh, your accolades, your uh, your 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 street cred? 
<laughs> Street cred. Well, on top of being the co-host of Force Perspective, which is now running on 70 episodes, and hopefully we'll even hit 100 this year. I'm ho- really hoping we actually do. But um, other than that, you know, I'm just the uh, a uh, researcher, I guess you could say, of film. You know, I started getting into this more when I was in college, when I started taking film courses there. And that kind of evolved into a love of all things cinema. And it, it even evolved into a brief stint in film school, too, which I had a great time in. We talked about also on Force Perspective. And, you know, it's just I love talking about these old films and about how these techniques were pioneered back in the day. A lot of stuff that we take for granted now, actually, you know, were first pioneered back in this era. So, you know, I love going back and watching old films. And I just like just learning from the greats. All right. Uh, and, and really don't get much greater than this film here. This is this is what this is considered to be one of the greatest films of all time, if not the greatest film of all time uh the sight and sound poll which is a kind of a uh, a very uh, you know a i don't know sure it's an annual poll but it's a very um prestigious poll showing what the best films of all time are uh they interview you know filmmakers and journalists and things like that citizen kane topped that list for years and years and years and years uh it's only just recently been unseated by vertigo which is a pretty good contender for number one but uh citizen kane the immortal classic considered by many to be the greatest film of all time Uh, before we get into our uh, our discussion on it, do you think that it deserves that that high praise? You know what? I've actually gone back now. Within a week, I've watched it twice. Now, before this week, I really haven't watched it that much. Probably about maybe five or six times tops. I had to watch some of it for film school as well. And you know what? Just based on you know the story, based upon the unique lenses that it used and the camera work that uh, Greg Tall and Orson Welles. Uh, basically they innovated you know and you know the great acting the the timeless story i think uh i really think it does i mean it might not hold up for some you know maybe younger viewers who are more used to the modern stuff and kind of just like not necessarily hate the old stuff but just you know don't pay it as much mind as like something more more recent but i truly feel that this really is probably the greatest film ever made uh, I mean, I, I, I'm on record as saying that Casablanca is the greatest film ever made because it's my favorite movie of all time. But Citizen Kane is probably, you know, if, if Casablanca is $100, then Citizen Kane is $99.99. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's right there. It's right behind it. Um, and, and remember, my favorite movie, Scarface from 1983, but that doesn't mean that Citizen Kane is not a better technically – overall made film in Scarface. Fair enough. But I would still argue Casablanca is a better film, but I think at that point you're just getting into, uh, you know, what you, your subjective tastes, you know? Right. Um, but but uh, before we get into stuff, when did you first experience the film? When did you first watch it? Um, I first watched it back in 2000, and I believe it was 2007, 2007, 2008, because... I remember that um, one of my film courses, we were talking about film history, and this was brought up, and then the professor went on talking about how, you know, a lot of people think this is the greatest film ever made, and this is why, and then he went through, you know, basically his analysis of the film, and it really made me want to see it. So I went out of my way to actually score a copy from the library, uh, the school library, and I watched it, and I don't know if I really got it at first, because 
this was around the time, like I said earlier, I was just starting to get into like you know watching old films and starting to appreciate them. So I don't think it really clicked at at first for me, but upon subsequent viewings, I even bought the uh, the uh, 70th anniversary Blu-ray that came out. I think it was 2010. I made sure I picked that up once it kind of went on sale with Amazon. I think it was a deal of the day for like 25 bucks, which is a great price. I'd pay more for this, you know. But um, you know, and then watching it then and then now kind of you know, watching it again, you know, more recently, you know, now that I see like all the stuff that, you know, the stuff that Orson Welles went through making this and just the backstory of the film. And then, like I said earlier, the different techniques that it pioneered, you know, that was kind of my, you know, initial experience to it. And now I've just grown to appreciate it more. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a, a similar experience. I, I watched it in 1999 for the first time uh i was in film school or studying film in college um and um you know this is this is a uh, film studies 101 this is film studies 100 it was the first film that we had to watch actually uh in the class and for whatever reason that day i was sick and i didn't go to class and uh i'm completely missed the screening so i had to rush down to the local video store back remember it was 1999 they still had those uh and get the uh the vhs copy of citizen kane um and i watched it in my dorm room and you know, I, I had heard of the reputation. I, I heard about Rosebud. I didn't know what Rosebud was uh, in the in, within the context of the film, but I, you know, I'd always heard that term, uh, and, and I knew that it had this reputation of being the greatest film of all time. Now, 1999. I was 19 years old. You know, my favorite favorite movie were things like Pulp Fiction, and uh, um, you know, <laughs> Pulp Fiction was actually probably my favorite film that back then. And you know, I, I had probably I had probably never seen a movie older than The Godfather. The Godfather is probably the oldest movie I'd ever seen. And I'd certainly never sat down and watched black and white movies. So to me, the uh, the the thought of, you know, black and white movies was, even though I was going into film studies, uh, you know, the thought of black and white movies was like, oh, do I have to sit and... Is it going to be old people talking? You know, all these people yeah, are dead. Yeah, it's like just a natural <laughs> turnoff for some, like, like for us younger folk. Right. It really is. Like when you think black and white, you think old, you think boring, and it's kind of just a turnoff. Yeah, and, and when you, yeah, you think old people, this is what you're, what you're, you're, you know, your old 50, you know, 70-year-old neighbor watches uh, in the afternoon or something, and it's just like, you didn't, I, I, I was not looking forward to it. And then when I sat and watched it, and I saw kind of the innovation, this things. it just didn't look like what I thought movies that old were supposed to look like. Right. Um, it just looked like it was very innovative and it, it pretty much grabbed my attention from the beginning. It had um, a, it didn't have a, you know, point A to point B to point C storytelling style. It kind of jumped all over the place, and uh, which remember I was a big fan of Pulp Fiction, so I, that that really appealed I was to me. Just about to bring that up, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, it was uh, I couldn't believe what I had watched, and uh, I was very uh, active in the discussions in the next class, even though I had missed the first class. I was very active in the discussions uh, about the film afterwards. So that was my first experience with the film, uh, and I have I've since I had bought it. Um, I actually bought the. Uh, the VHS copy, like they had, they were like doing a uh, not going out of business sale, but they were like just getting rid of old VHS tapes at the video store, and I, I bought that tape for like three dollars. Uh, I went on to buy the DVD. I now have the Blu-ray set, and I even went back 
uh, because I'm a collector and bought the uh, Criterion Laserdisc uh, of this film, which Spine is actually what I want. What's that? Spine number one. Yeah, which is actually which is actually what I watched it, uh, in preparation for this for this uh, awesome. movie on. Uh, and and if you've never seen, heard of Laserdisc. Um, if you're if you're someone who's younger than you know twenty, you don't know what laserdisc is. Basically, basically imagine DVDs, but the size of a like a vinyl record, and instead of playing through the movie once, it plays about thirty minutes. You have to get up, flip the side over, it plays another thirty <laughs> minutes, and then you have to get the other disc, put that in, and then you just keep watching it like that. But so it, it and but the thing is, what's fascinating about it, you know, I I, I have. I did put my laser disc in there. It's connected to my big high def TV. It's as good as quality uh, as DVD. It's as good as quality as DVD. Um, so I mean, the DVD kind of you know compact uh, made the made the whole process a little more seamless. But you know what? For the '80s, whenever they made laser discs, that wasn't bad. It looked really good. Um, anyway, regardless. So that's how I watched it this time, uh, and that's how I first experienced the film. So. Before we continue, I'm going to go ahead and kind of just read off uh, some of the stats about this film. So, Susan Kane was directed by Orson Welles, was released in 1941 uh, uh, by RKO Pictures. Uh, it starred Orson Welles himself, uh, Joseph Cotton, Dorothy Cummingor, Agnes Moorhead, Ruth Warwick, Ray Collins, Everett Sloan, and George Coloris. Uh, it was written by Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles, and it was produced by Orson Welles and George Schaefer, and cinematography by the great Greg Tolan. It was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Welles, Best Director for Welles, Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound, Film Editing, Music, and it was... It only won one, which was best writing for uh, screenplay for Mankiewicz and Wells. We'll get a little. We'll get into a little bit more into why that happened yeah. a little later, because uh, it famously, famously lost to uh, How Green Was My Valley, which, while no. it is actually, no, that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually seen How Green Was My Valley. I've seen all the Best Picture winners of um, throughout the years. Uh, it's not actually not a bad film. It's actually a very good film, but it does. Whenever you know that it has, it, it beat uh, Citizen Kane. It's kind of leaves a bad taste to your mouth. Um, it, it, the American Film Institute has um, has called it the number one film of all time in their 100 years, 100 movies twice. Uh, it also has the greatest, the seventh greatest quote of all time, which is Rosebud. Um, and in, on my site, The Essential Films, uh, I've named it uh, one of the greatest films of all time. And it's one of the 85 best pictures to never win best picture. Uh, and in 1989, it was inducted into the National Film Registry. So it has a lot of impressive credentials. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we kind of get into the meat of this? Um, Citizen Kane came about because basically because of two people, Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst. Now, Welles was a uh, kind of a child prodigy. And uh, as he grew up, you know, he, he, he was very interested in the arts. And he, you know, he ran a, a, a Shakespeare theater for an all-black community back in, in Harlem when he was, like, in the, only in his 20s. But what kind of brought him to national attention was his very famous or infamous War of the World <laughs> broadcast, uh, where he basically played the, he basically told the story of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, but he did it in a manner that seemed that made it seem like a news report that it was actually happening. So remember, this is nineteen, I mean, I don't remember the date, but this is the nineteen thirties, late nineteen thirties. 
so there wasn't the internet, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook, so you didn't know exactly what, what was going on. Radio was your social media, and if you're hearing a radio station broadcast that, it actually caused quite a panic. Have you ever heard the War of the Worlds broadcast? I have for a class I took, but it, it's been a long... I actually, actually have not gone back to listen to it again, but there were uh, clips played in the documentary that you know we watched to prepare for this battle over Citizen Kane, and it kind of made me want to go back and listen to it. I think it's on YouTube anyway. It is but, on YouTube. Uh, it is on YouTube. So, yeah, so if, I definitely if, want to go back and listen to that. So anybody out there, if you're interested, um, you should check it out. Just All you have to do is type in Orson Welles, War of the Worlds. You'll find it on YouTube. It's about an hour long. Um, I, I, I've, I have heard the whole thing before, and it, it is actually kind of impressive how they pull it off. There are times when you're like, okay, come on. How did they not realize that this, this was this was a fake? But um, for the most part, you know, it, it's a very impressive, very convincing broadcast. Um, he got in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> uh, and did you see in the in one of my favorite things in the Battle Over Citizen Kane documentary? They show a clip of him apologizing for it yeah. afterwards, and it's just really kind of amusing, kind of how he's trying to hide the grin. That yeah. <laughs> What a cardi! Yeah, he, he <laughs> this was, guy was so insincere with his apology. You could just tell just was the, the most, way he was expressing it. Yeah, yeah, it was the most insincere apology you've ever seen. Uh, but it gave him a lot of a uh, lot of attention, and he kind of he was kind of billed as this genius, um, and he kind of struck this deal, this unprecedented deal with RKO uh, RKO Pictures, and um, RKO Pictures basically gave him. I don't remember how many uh, how many movies, but he, they give him this multi picture deal, where he had complete creative control to do whatever he wanted. I think the deal was he had to do two. He had to do them. two. That's what it is. Yeah, and he and he could do whatever he wanted. And can you imagine? Like you don't have those kind of deals anymore. And I think they they started and ended with Horson Wells, basically because of what happened with Citizen Kane. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, because it's like. Not to kind of divert from another, uh, from another like subject altogether, but like with sports, with the big sports contracts. Like to take it to a more recent example, you know, the ten-year contract that the Yankees gave Alex Rodriguez, and he really hasn't done much with it. I think since they he signed that contract, they have not won a World Series. You know, it's just you know one of the the dumbest things. And then you know the the sports teams are kind of now kind of trying to backtrack from it, but at the same time, you know, some some teams never learn. I think I forgot. Some pitcher is supposed to be getting like a lucrative contract, but it's like, you know, you got it now to switch gears again to back to Orson Welles. It's like, you know, you see this, you know, unproven guy get this deal, you know, rub people in Hollywood the wrong way. And then when really all that came out of it was just one movie that's really, you know, at the time it wasn't considered a classic. It wasn't until years later that it was revisited. And then that's when all the praise started coming in. But at the time, you know, it was just basically just an insignificant, like it was just there. You know, it didn't rake in anything at the box office. You know, the controversy it created was more than enough to just like kind of just put it away forever. And, you know, after that, it was like, you know, I don't think anybody got that kind of deal again. No, he did actually make another movie uh, with RKO, but it was taken away from him, basically. Like halfway Uh, through the shoot. The Magnificent Ambersons, which I've seen. And it's a very it's a very good movie. But it's boy, you when you go when you start out the gate with Citizen Kane, it's really hard to top yourself, you know, Um but uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of it's 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 an unprecedented deal. It never really ever happened again. Um, but before he got to Citizen Kane, he originally he wanted to make the Hearts of the Heart of Darkness, which is uh, the Joseph Conrad novel that we all read in high school, um, and which 
uh, Francis Ford Coppola basically made uh, as Apocalypse Now in the 70s. Yes. Um, and after, I think it was like a year of pre-production, uh, RKO told him, you know what, you're, this is, you're wasting time, you, yeah. we don't want to do this, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. We're not doing this anymore. So they told him to get work on something else. Uh, and that's whenever her, uh, that's whenever Wells basically came up with the idea of making a movie on William Randolph Hearst. Now, not to make this too much of a history lesson, but Hearst was basically the Rupert Murdoch of his time. I was just gonna, I was gonna compare him to Murdoch too, but you gotta, all right. I mean, so we're thinking the same, yeah, like that. But I mean, obviously, this is a time with before uh, national mainstream media, like twenty four hour news channels. But he owned, I think, uh, one fifth of the the country's newspapers. So he he had significant influence over what people read on a daily basis. Um, he had he was he was a guy who ran for many different offices. He ran for president, he ran for governor, uh he 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 uh he was very public figure. At first he was very uh you know he pushed like a very liberal agenda for immigrants and minorities and, and, and the poor. And then over time he kind of was anti union and he was pro Hitler at one point. Um, and if you're starting to think this sounds a little familiar, it's because uh, Wells basically cribbed all of that to, to craft the character of uh, Charles Foster Kane, uh, including giving him a, a – uh, now, in the movie, it's a, it, he, it, she becomes his wife. But in, the, in real life, uh, Marion Davies, who was an actress, um, kind of a B-level actress in the day. She, she didn't really account, amount to much. But Hearst really, really wanted to push her as a star, and she never really became one. Uh, and in the film, it was, uh, <clears throat> he, he, that character was, um, was an opera singer. Uh, th- and, um, yeah, it was just a lot of similarities between the two to the point where, let's face it, uh, Wells, event- <laughs> Hearst eventually got wind of it and, uh, it kind of caused quite a, quite a storm of, uh, of bad press. But we'll get to that a little later. Um, uh, let's go over the, the plot of the film real quick. So, and I'm going to read from a, from a, uh, from my blog about this. So, Citizen Kane examines the life of Charles Foster Kane, a wealthy newspaper baron who is heavily based on contemporary uh, media mogul William Randolph Hearst. Kane, alone in his palace, which he is named Xanadu, dies in his sleep, uttering one word before he passes, Rosebud. After leading such a public life where he accomplished many great things, the significance of his final word remain a mystery. Told through a series of flashbacks, a newspaper reporter tracks down key figures in Kane's life to try to unravel the enigma that is Charles Foster Kane. Um, so right there, well, let's let's start with that. It, it, it's kind of an interesting plot device uh, to kill your to kill your protagonist literally in the first minute of the movie. Uh, I know people talk about Psycho killing the protagonist halfway through the movie, which is pretty interesting too. But Wells just goes ahead and kills Kane right away. Well, if you notice too, um, I think there would have been like reservations at that time about how the film was structured and i think it would have probably confused audiences at the time because the non-linear structure that we kind of see and every other film kind of does it now i mean pulp fiction made it more famous but this non-linear structure at the time really um was kind of untested with audiences so you really didn't know how they were going to react to it so what wells did i think this is pretty brilliant he kind of just gives it all away at the beginning he dies then you have the newsreel that basically goes through every 
but it goes through Kane's life entirely from be, from the beginning to the end. So it, with that technique, he's basically giving you the whole story. That way, the flashbacks you can follow the flashbacks better. Right. So I think that was pretty pretty awesome to do because it kind of gets the whole like meat and potatoes of the story out of the way, and then you, it allows you to focus more on the flashbacks, go jumping back and forth, and you know it's a little more clear. Yeah, and and and, and to add to that point, what I what I like about that. Um, not only is it the, it kind of almost devalues that story. In the, in the, in, the, in other words, Wells is kind of saying, "All right, here's the whole story, but it's not important. What's important is what I'm going to tell you a little later through all these different stories, uh, through all these different character flashbacks. But this is just all the plot points that in any other movie about uh, any other biopic per se uh, about someone, this would be all the important plot points of that movie." But we're just going to give them to you all in these five minutes, and then later on, when we're interviewing everybody, we're going to go deep into it and actually talk about the character. Uh, because these points don't actually matter. It's the character that matters. Right. Um, what I And pretty much right away, right after that, after that newsreel. So it, it, it kind of fascinates me watching this movie in, in 2016 now, because you start with the character dies. Boom. And then you have the newsreel showing you everything that's going to happen in the movie. And then right after that, you're in this random uh, like screening room where we don't see anybody's face. They're all in shadows. And it's, it's probably some of the most beautiful yeah. cinematography ever. Uh, and it, these all these nameless, faceless reporters uh, talking about, well, what does any of this mean? We have to find out what Rosebud means. How does every, anybody, like, what does that mean to this man? Let's find out. But that whole scene right there, which tells you, okay, this is how the movie's going to work now. We're going to have this guy go around asking people what's going on. It's just such a beautifully shot scene that I could watch that scene over and over again. Yeah, especially with the way that, like you just mentioned, the uh, it's like the the guy's faces, the journalist's faces are are in shadows, which was done obviously on purpose. And really, it's because you know they kind of wanted to just. I think what he was going for, and I think what I. I saw Ebert talk about was that they wanted the journalists to just be kind of like an everyman, like not put like faces to these people because they could it could be anybody, you know. So they kind of wanted the audience to just kind of imagine, you know, the faces, you know, in place of these shadows. And what I also liked too was there's a scene when I think the the, the head head reporter is talking to Thompson, who's the guy who ends up interviewing everybody, and like you see uh the the his boss or the head reporter whatever he is like moving his hands against like the the shadow of the um of the newsreel right like the projector and like there's like rays coming out of his hands like kind of like rays of light that kind of give it kind of like a uh satanic kind of a vibe and you see that kind of again later in a later scene with charles foster king where you see like the flame over his head as he's like talking about his declaration of principles so i like that whole satanic motif is present in the film too you know i never i never thought of that that's actually pretty good it's a pretty good uh, observation. Um, yeah, that I, I do kind of love that that whole that that whole ten minutes of the of the film is just so good. I mean, you know, you see the main character's death, you get the newsreel of his life, you get this you know screening room thing where they're talking about the word rosebud, and now boom, here's the movie. Let's let's go let's go from there. And I can only imagine what the hell people in 1941 were watching this movie who expect, you know, plot A to plot B to plot C to plot D. And this is like plot F and now plot A through F 
and now part G, and now we're going to go back to plot A, uh, but we're only going to tell you a little bit of plot A, and then take you to plot B, and then somebody else is going to tell you about plot A, and it, and that to me I can't like if you're an, like in today's world that you can make that kind of film because Citizen right. Kane basically made that first, um, but. But in 1941, I can't even imagine what that must have been like for people to be like, wait, what the hell is going on? I can't – like, I have to imagine there are people sitting in that theater for the first time just looking at each other going, what What am I watching? What is this? Well, that would have been exacerbated if the newsreel wasn't at the beginning of the film. That's you know? true. But I still think people would have been like, uh, what, what's happening? <laughs> you know? Um, so – the the plot point the plot device of the movie is you know he's trying to uh, Thompson is trying to find out what Rosebud means and can I just say real quick that uh, one criticism of the film is that people say oh but there's actually nobody around whenever he says Rosebud how does anybody know that, that he says Rosebud that's bullcrap because at the end of the movie the butler reveals that he was there and he heard him say Rosebud so well you don't exactly you don't see the butler there but basically the fact that he was able to recount everything now I mean he could be BSing everybody but. I mean, we kind of have to take his word for it, and the fact that he was able to recount everything as it happened in the, in, you know, not only that scene where he's tearing up the Susan Alexander's bedroom, but then at the end when he says Rosebud and drops the snow globe, you know, we kind of have to be like, okay, maybe he was there. Right. Um, all right, so then the movie kind of begins in earnest, uh, where Thompson tracks down all the major people in Kane's life, uh, and each person tells him a different part of the story, uh, or at least a different part of the story from the point in time that they knew him. Um, and, and what makes that unique is, so it's not like, like I said, so when he first goes to, uh, actually he first goes to Susan, but she's drunk and he can't get anything out of her. And then he goes to the Thatcher library, I think. Um, and you just get Thatcher's recollections of him as a boy, as a young man. And then whenever he loses uh, one of his newspapers and then that's it. That's all you get out of him. But, but so, in the first kind of flashback sequence, all we see is uh, Charles Foster Gain inheriting all that money that makes him a – back then what would be now probably be a billionaire, right? In 2016 right. money would probably be a billionaire. Um, he inherits all that money and then it jump cuts to him as a young man uh, buying a newspaper and basically pushing out his his own agenda through the newspaper, frustrating Thatcher who's kind of like his guardian um, and then jump cut from there – to him as an old man, uh, not maybe not old man, but kind of like a middle-aged man who was kind of like uh, getting rid. I think he's selling his newspaper, one of his newspapers off yeah. or something, and he's and he's kind of. And then that's it. So you you still don't really know what's going on. That you just kind of get like a glimpse of this guy and what's going on with him. And then you jump to another person's perspective, which I think is um, right. uh, his well, buddy. Before you move on to to uh, Bernstein, I think. Bernstein. It was the next one. Right? Before you move on to him, I do want to talk about that last scene. In the Thatcher flashback where he's selling, right. like, the newspaper. Now, what I really liked about this scene, too, was that – and you, you can see this a lot in, in Citizen Kane, the optical illusions. Like, mm. this movie had as much special effects, according to Roger Ebert, as a Star Wars film would. Because mm. the special effects, even though they're not really, like, noticeable, there was still a lot of, like, trickery and magic in special effects. Oh, there's a lot of map paintings yeah. in this movie. Yeah, exactly. But it's um, more – there's film splicing. Like, there's different things here that kind of create special effects. Like in this scene right here that we're talking about, um, they use an optical illusion where at the beginning you kind of see uh, Kane walking towards the window, right? Now, 
you think that, you know, the window and his height are kind of the same, but as he's walking closer and closer to the window, you see that the the uh, the window is actually far higher than he is, and it kind of reduces him to this, like, tiny ant of a man, which is kind of reflective of the scene. You know, he's, he's basically, his empire is crumbling. So then after that, like, he kind of walks back towards the screen as, like, Thatcher's reading off, like, the, the contract or whatever it is that's happening, and then, like, he, he grows back in stature again. So optical illusions like that kind of help enhance the storytelling, and you see it a lot in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that film, you know, or sorry, that film, that scene, that scene is a really perfect example of that. Uh, and it's, and, and you know, it's one shot too. You see Thatcher in the foreground, and you see him from behind. You see Bernstein kind of in the middle ground, and then you see that. Uh, then, you, like you said, you see Kane walking to and from the window. Um, and it's just very perfectly still shot, but there's just a lot going on in that one shot, and it's so perfectly, uh, perfectly framed, perfectly lit. I mean, we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about Greg Toll and the cinematography on this. I mean, that dude could. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the probably one of the most beautiful movies, like beautifully shot movies of all time. And, and what I love too is that they uh, what they decided to do also, and this becomes a motif in the film. They actually assign kind of a spot on the screen for like the witness who's telling the story. Like for example, like mm-hmm. we move on to Bernstein, you know, and then we move on to Susan Alexander, and then we move on to uh, uh, Jebediah. He, they put the witness or the person who's telling the story in the flashback. They put him on the lower right hand corner of the screen. That's usually, that's the spot they marked for like the witness who's telling the story. And you see that in every flashback, like not all the time. I mean, it's not it's not perfect. It's not like they do it every single time. But most of the time, the witness to the story is located on the bottom right hand corner of the screen witnessing what's going on. And I thought that was a pretty cool motif to do. Yeah, I do. I did. Uh, that was that was pretty good, too. Um yeah, man, this movie, <laughs> I, lo- I really do love this movie. Like, it, everything it, is so done. It's, it's so crisp and done with a sense of purpose. You know that's what really kind of helps it endure too. Yeah. So, so one of the one of the themes of the movie is is jigsaw puzzles. Like the the guy, the Thompson is trying to make a puzzle out of trying to you know put together a puzzle out of all these pieces, you know that he's getting in from all these different people. And you know you see later you see Susan actually literally putting together uh, uh, jigsaw puzzles, uh, and, and that's what the whole film is. Not only is it. Not only do you, is Susan's literal putting together the puzzles. Not only is it uh, Thompson's, you know, trying to gather the story and putting it together. It's the audience trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle. So, you know, when you do a jigsaw puzzle, the finished product is what is what's supposed to be the picture on the box, right? And and in this case, the picture on the box is the newsreel footage at the beginning of the movie. And all the different multiple viewpoints that you're getting from the different from the different uh, interviewees uh, are the puzzle pieces. But when you when they put when they finally put together the puzzle at the end, do you get what you expected? And I think that is kind of the beauty of this film. Yeah, I think the the, the consensus now, and I believe that uh, Pauline Kael did a, a book about Citizen Kane. I think it's called Dissecting Kane, or I mean, I could be wrong with the title, but I mean, she also talks about how in the end, you know, Rosebud is kind of just like, it's what's, it's essentially a MacGuffin in a sense, mm-hmm. because it's kind of what drives the plot, 
But at the end, it's not really that important. You know, it becomes this inconsequential thing. But it is important in the sense that this is the word that drives the plot forward. And actually, we have a movie because of this word. So, I mean, in that sense, it's probably the most one of the most important words in all of cinema. But then once you get to the end of the film and you see what the word actually means, you know, is it inconsequential? Yeah, kind of. But um, it still doesn't take away from the ride we just went on. Is it, it's inconsequential and it's not. So it is and it isn't, I think. Like, so, I mean, and obviously we're going we're gonna to talk spoilers here, folks, but, I mean, the movie is 75 years old at this point, so you should have seen it by now. Um, but this is going to be, this show is going to be, for future references, a discussion on the films, and we're going to go deep into spoilers on every movie we do here. But, so, at the end of the film, you find out that Rosebud is really his sled. His sled that you see actually at the very, very beginning of the film, uh, whenever he's uh, through his action at the very beginning, but uh, at the very first flashback uh, the, from the Thatcher Library where Thatcher goes to meet him for the first time and he's out there uh, on, his, on his sled and, and playing. Um, so on the one hand, you could, you could kind of read it as, well, the sled represents his, his lost innocence, his idealism that he lost after he went off to, you know, and, and this money and this power and this fame corrupted him. You could say that. But on the other hand, you could also say what you just said is that is it, does it really matter what the sled means? You know, does it really matter what that last piece of the puzzle is with this man? Right, because, you know, when you get to know the man throughout the movie, you know, and you see everything that he's done, all the, the life that he's lived, I think that the word kind of helps, you know, kind of bring everything full circle. But at the same time, you know, what Thompson is trying to discover, like what this means. And, you know, I don't think that that word kind of just... I mean, I'm trying to figure out the best way to put it, but essentially that, you know, Rosebud is, you know, again, something that may seem like, oh, you know, it represents his innocence, his lost innocence, that, uh, you know, kind of him longing for his childhood again, you know, how happy he was then. And then kind of turning around and now that's like the big reveal. It kind of like, um, you know, it's not that hard for people to believe i guess that um that's the, the whole point of like the ride we just went on but you know i still feel like even though people think it's inconsequential like that pretty much just brings the story full circle I think. right uh it's yeah i think the other way to, the other way to see it is you know going back to the jigsaw puzzle when you when you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle and you put together the final piece. And let's say the final piece in this analogy is Rosebud. You're finding out what Rosebud is. Does it, you know, does it ultimately matter that you put that piece in there? You still get a sense of what the puzzle is now, you know, without that piece, you know? Right. So it, it, it is and it isn't. Like, it, I, I go back and forth on this every time I watch it, if the sled is actually that important or not, or if it's just a plot device. Um, or if it is actually, you know, the lost innocence, the lost idealism and all that, uh, or if it's both, you know, or if it's just Wells messing with the audience and saying, I've taken you on this ride and now I'm just going to screw with you a little bit, you know, uh, and here you go. Here's what the sled means. I don't I mean, know. I definitely, I definitely see that. I mean, you know, with, the uh, with 
going back and seeing like Will's reputation, kind of like how he was, I wouldn't put that past him to be honest. But you know, I feel like it could be both. Like there is symbolism into Rosebud into the sled, but at the same time, it could be just a hey, you thought it was this grand thing, and it's just a sled, you know. So, but I I feel it could be both. Yeah, it, it really kind of. I'm not, it's every time I watch it, I kind of get something different out, out of this film. I really do. So I, I'm trying to uh, live on the air. I'm trying to figure out which one, which side I I want to stand on as far as if it means something or not. Uh, I, I think I'm gonna go take the cheap way out and just say both. It means it, it does mean something, but it doesn't. I mean, I I'm more of like a romantic when it comes to just like storytelling. So I do like the uh, the attachment that Rosebud had to to his childhood, to his innocence, and to kind of not to fast forward, but then to kind of see like it burn at the end, and then to see like that final shot of like the smoke coming out of the castle. That's that's an eerie shot, man. I mean yeah. that that last shot kind of gives me the chills, and then you have the big the end over it. But it's like you know seeing that that symbol that we've kind of been trying to figure out what it means to the whole movie just burn essentially in effigy, and then seeing the smoke come out of the out of Xanadu. It's just it's a very creepy shot, but I loved it. It's almost a horror movie ending. You know, right? It, it, you see that, and then the, then the Bernard Herrmann score, yeah, kind with of the Bernard Herrmann over that score, too, which, which, uh, if you guys, if you, if you don't know who Bernard Herrmann is, he, he would, he would go on to score some of the most amazing scores you've ever heard of, uh, Vertigo, North by Northwest. He did the Twilight Zone. He did Taxi Driver, Taxi Driver, yeah, uh, so which is one of his great ones. Um, and, and this is, I mean, this is a really eerie kind of score, which is probably another thing that probably turned people off. Uh, turn people off about this movie because it's not your t- it wasn't your typical uh it wasn't your typical motion picture score from back in the day um there's a lot of people that got uh a lot of kind of recognition on this bernard herman was one his acting cast specifically i think joseph cotton just this was joseph cotton's first big film um and joseph cotton's like one of my favorite actors from that era uh, he's done. He did. I mean, he did some of my favorite movies. He did the Third Man, also with Orson Welles. Yes. Uh, not directed by Welles, but starring Welles. Uh, that's one of my favorite movies ever. He did um, um, Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, the um, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. You ever see that one? That one I have not caught yet. It's a great film where um, it's a Hitchcock movie where uh, he plays Uncle Charlie, who is this kind of no good guy who who uh who kind of comes back to like his childhood home where his brother and his, uh, is married to, I think it's his brother. Uh, you know, his brother's married and he has, you know, he has a family and he, he has a, a niece that shares the same name. The niece is also called Charlie. But when you kind of comes back into town, you kind of start to suspect that Charlie isn't uncle. Charlie is not quite all he seems he could be. And he he's potentially a murderer. And now the, the, the niece has kind of found out about it. And now there's all, and then, and classic Hitchcock, you know, fashion, there's a lot of suspense regarding whether like Charlie's going to get caught by his niece and whether she's going to expose him and then what happens, you know, all that. So it's a good movie. It's one of it's one of Hitchcock's best movies that like nobody ever talks about because everyone always talks about, you know, Psycho and, and North and Northwest and Vertigo. But no one ever yeah. talks about uh, Shadow of a Doubt. It's a really good movie. You should you should check it out. Um, but, you know, he, he was kind of one of those big uh, 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 classic Hollywood actors. Um and you know what? What also what also is interesting about this film is that he he didn't cast anybody uh, who at the time was famous. They were all people from his Mercury Theater. Um, yeah, that was the that was kind of unique too. Like, it's, and when you go back and watch the original theatrical trailer, 
you know, Orson Welles narration. He talks about, you know, you know, this is my uh, cash for my Mercury Theater. You probably don't know him, so I'm introducing to you now. And then, you know, it goes like one by one to like, you know, you know, this is uh, Ruth Warwick. This is Joseph Cotton, you know, and uh, it, that was it was pretty interesting because, I mean, it was part of the, his deal with, with RKO. Like he could cast whoever he wanted. He, could, he had full control. So, you know, he went back to his Mercury Theater and then he just brought that cast over, you know, complete unknowns. Yeah, complete unknowns. Um it, 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 it was just it's just interesting how many careers this launched because uh, his editor on the film is was Robert Weiss, who went on to become a big director. He directed West Side Story and won an Oscar for it. So, I mean, the, the impact this film, not only on just uh, storytelling, uh, sorry, not only on just production, but also on storytelling and, and everything else, just is kind of unbelievable when you just look at all this stuff. Uh, and we we talked about earlier about the non-narrative filmmaking of uh, of it, and that certainly had to have influenced things like Rashomon and of course and Pulp Fiction. You know that that yeah. non-linear storytelling, which I'm a huge fan of. I'm a big mark for that. So it's it's hard to to watch this film and and get a full appre- if you're watching it for the first time, get a full appreciation of how influential it really was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about the cinematography. Uh, Greg Tolan, who uh, won an Oscar for uh, Wuthering Heights, uh, he also he also did Grapes of Wrath. He did Best Years of Our Lives. He did Song of the South. Um, he he basically, I think, went after uh, Orson to do this movie. Um, and yeah. when you look at the results. Like, do you have any favorite shots of the movie? Because I have a couple. Like, we talked about the, the screening room scene. I love that scene. Um, the other one I have is the Thatcher Library, when he's first going into the library, and you see that beam of light kind of shining down on the diary. Yeah. That's a fantastic shot. That is awesome. Um, um, go ahead. No, well, I was going to say, like, my possibly my favorite shot in the entire film is the um, the rally that uh, Kane holds when he's running for, for governor. And Madison Square Garden, by the way, that's where it was shot, I believe. I don't know if it – actually, no. I don't know if it was shot there, but that's where it's supposed to be taking place. It's supposed to take place there. I'm not sure if it was shot there or not. But just, you know, that shot, like that long shot, because what, what, for those of you who don't know, the only thing that's real in that long shot of like when they show the crowd and they show the big Kane sign, like that, that famous Kane sign has been parodied like forever, <laughs> you know, it seems. But – the only thing that's real in that is Kane and then the guys that are on stage with him. Everything else is a map painting. The crowd is a map painting. You know, the background behind, like next to the sign is a map. Everything else is a map painting. And what's cool about it, too, is that all they did was they took, like, little, like, like lights, and they kind of set it, like, put, put holes, like, where the audience's heads would be, and they kind of had the lights move around to make it seem like there were people there. Oh. You know, it's like, but, but, like, the illusion of, like, this big packed Madison Square Garden is actually all map painting. That's freaking phenomenal filmmaking there. Yeah, and it's very, very, uh, it, it, it very much invokes uh, the Hitler rallies back, back from back in the day too. Right, and then you even have the, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's a, uh, it's a cliched shot now, but to have like, and this happened a lot in this, in this movie too. How you know, like the, the angle, like the upward angle of showing, you know, Kane or I think one, one other scene had like Kane and. Uh, and uh, Jebediah, like kind of with that upward angle, making them seem like maybe larger than life, kind of like what we saw in the Triumph of the Will, too. Like it was trying to evoke that as well, but 
you know, the whole point was they try tried to make Kane, you know, be like this larger than like mythic figure. Are you talking about the scene in uh, after he's lost? Right. Yeah, where they had to where uh, legend has it and. And not even just legend, it was confirmed in the documentary and in the in the uh, TV film RKO two eighty one where K- where uh, Wells just could not get that camera as low as he wanted it to go. So they literally just dug a hole in the floor, stuck Greg Tolan in there with the camera, <laughs> yeah. just so that he could get that shot. Amazing. Um, it, it, that is that is that is my, that was the other shot I was going to talk about. That's my other favorite shot um, where it's just such and it's again one long take. Of, the, of them performing that scene from that angle, and it's just beautiful. Like you really get like the you know, you know, I, in, in in you know researching this, you know, well said that that was supposed to be his, mm-hmm. his his the lowest point of this larger than life man, and you you're down in the dirt with him and looking up and and oh, it's just such a beautiful shot. Um, I mean, a lot of these scenes here in, in Citizen Kane are, are just long one one takes. Yeah, you know, like the scene in the beginning, you know, uh, when Kane is ten years old, when it goes from the inside of the house to the outside is all one shot. You know, the uh, this scene right here, or the scene, especially also um, when I think it was near the beginning when they're trying to go when he's trying to talk to Susan Alexander, but you know she's too drunk doesn't want to talk to him. That was all one shot too. But there's different examples too in this. In this film, where it was basically all just one like big tracking shot, mm-hmm. all in one take, and not, and not just that, not just the tr- not the long takes and the tracking shots and things like that, but also if you watch the film, that whole film was almost all in deep focus. You can see every detail of in every frame of that film, like and now this is probably like maybe the first major film to use that because from what I understand, this was an experimental lens that Tallinn was using. Like when they first started filming the, uh, the the movie, and they were supposedly doing those test shots for uh, for RK when they were actually you know they were actually really filming, they they tried to use this uh, time to experiment with the with the lenses, and he kind of innovated this deep focus lens that kind of shows everything not just in the foreground but in the background super clear, and that was that was one of the biggest innovations I think of this film. Yeah, I was gonna. I was actually gonna bring that up. They talk about that in the documentary, and I think it's. I think it's Robert Weiss, the editor, who's talking about that. How he, uh, how how they, <laughs> how he just. This is just Wells messing with people at that point. He's just telling them, yeah, these are just test shots. We're just, you know, and then then they find out, no, wait, those are real shots. Those are those are finished, complete products, and they're going in the movie. And they're they were just, but at the same time, they were originally testing them. They're like, eff it, we're gonna use this, right? Oh, and 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 that put them two days ahead of schedule, apparently. Yeah, uh, probably the only time it was ahead of schedule because that movie was. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny because there's a lot of correlations between Wells and Kane because Wells, in an attempt to make this film about this man who uh, just kind of tries to push his vision on the world, was in was in fact just doing the same thing at any cost. So at the studio's right. money, he was over budget. He's over schedule. You know, there's the there's there's the the urban myth that that the one shot where where uh, the butler you know strikes the match and says Rosebud. I'll tell you about Rosebud. It took fifty six takes and it was one line. Um, it, it was. But I lo- oh well, not to get sidetracked, but I love how that character is introduced. Yeah, like you have the darkness. He lights the match and his face is kind of in the shadows. He goes like Rosebud. I can tell you about Rosebud. Yes. And then he kind of just he just comes off as this like really slimy kind of guy who's probably like in the back of your head been stealing from Kane for like 
for his entire time there, like maybe stealing like uh, caviar, or maybe stealing like uh, uh, some jewels or something. But he just gives off this kind of like really like slimy kind of uh, characterization. And then on top of that too, like any and I think uh, Paul Stewart, I think was the name of the actor. I'm not sure if that was him or not, but he runs with it too. Like he takes the magic and he, and he puts it out on the wall of 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 the mansion of Xanadu. Which basically just shows his total disregard for the place, you know, and it kind of just enhances his slimy character. Yeah, he he really doesn't give a crap. <laughs> he he really doesn't care about about Xanadu or or, or, or uh, Kane or anything. He just he was doing a job, and now he sees an opportunity to profit off of telling this guy what Rosebud means. Right, but it's just a great intro scene, though. Uh, yeah, but can we also talk about real quick? Like, so we talk a lot about how great the script is with, with that Wells and, and Mankiewicz wrote. We talk about a lot about how great the cinematography is. We talk about how great, uh, how, how fantastic a movie this was directed. But let's talk about Wells as an actor here. I think Wells, this is like one of the greatest performances, I think, in movie history. That no, Because everyone always talks about this movie, but they rarely talk about his performance, which I think is amazing. Because when you look at, like, this film, like you said, as we've talked about, jumps around at different points in his life. And when you look at him as a young man, like just taking over the first, uh, the first newspaper, he's vibrant. He's full of energy. He's dancing with girls. He's you know doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And then by the end, when he's an old man, he's like this stiff, crotchety, you know, can barely move, you know, dinosaur. Uh, and everything in between, he just plays a per- like any other movie. You know, you'd have an actor kind of acting the same throughout the whole movie, and then in the one old scene, he'd he'd act old, right? But as the movie goes on in the different time periods of his life, he acts differently in each time period of his life, with the, just his physical, like his body acting. And what's also kind of funny about that too, like in the scenes where he's playing the you know, older older Kane, is that you know he he asked to wear like a brace on his back to kind of help him walk stiffer. And he was already wearing like an ankle bracelet because of what happened when he w- they were filming the scene where uh, uh, Jim Getty was uh, exposing him when he c- tried to run after him down the stairs. He actually fell down the stairs, and he had to like wear an ankle brace for a while because I think he I don't think he broke his ankle, but like he really hurt it. So he had to wear, walk around in a brace for a while. And it was during that time they decided to film like the the older scene because you know not only did he have did he wore like the brace on his back, but like he walked with a limp, but that was on purpose because he was wearing the ankle brace bracelet. So, you know, that kind of helped enhance, you know, I guess the character at that stage of his life, you know, he's an older guy. He's having trouble walking. He's walking a little stiffer, but like, it was just happenstance that that happened to him. And it kind of helped his portrayal of that older King. Right. Um, and the other thing, the other thing that helped with the performances uh, that I think is, it isn't talked about enough is the makeup effects. Now, when you look at it in high definition, the very old makeup doesn't quite hold up as well. But the middle age, like when he's a middle aged man, you forget that this guy was like twenty five years old when he made this yeah. movie. And when you see him in, in the middle aged makeup, he looks like a forty five year old man. He he definitely looks like an older man. He acts like one. He talks like one. He looks like one. Uh, it, it's it was very impressive uh, makeup f- effects at that time. I, I agree, and not just him, but to everybody. Yeah, for everyone too. The only one I think that really doesn't look that doesn't hold up at all is Jedediah's old man makeup. That he it, he doesn't look good at all for whatever reason. It just doesn't <laughs> work. 
Uh, everyone else's makeup looks really good. Uh, I think Susan Alexander's makeup looks really good at the end. Uh, but yeah. everyone everyone looks really good. Um, but that Jedediah in the hospital, uh, that just, for whatever reason, it just <laughs> every time I see it, I'm like, this is the one thing that doesn't work about this movie. Um, I don't know. I, I do really – I don't know where else to go with this uh, as far as – uh, as far as the film itself uh, is concerned, did you want to talk about any points in particular? Um, off the top of my head, I know that, uh, I, like, like I mentioned earlier, I was I rewatched the film again, but with the Roger Ebert commentary on. And you know, watching this film with Roger Ebert, like basically talking about it, is kind of evokes you know how we used to do like the Ebert Fest, where he would like pick a film and just like dissect it like scene by scene. This is essentially what you're getting here with this commentary, which I thought was an awesome feature on the Blu-ray. And when we come to this scene at the uh, when you introduce like older Bernstein is about to start his flashback. If you remember, he tells that story about seeing like the white the the girl in the white dress that he just he didn't uh yes. he didn't go up to her or anything. Like he just but he still remembers like every day like he hasn't forgotten that day when he, he saw this girl in a white dress, right? And this is probably Ebert's favorite scene in the entire movie because it kind of has like this universal symbolism to it. You know, basically what Wells is trying to tell us, you know, happiness can happen for everybody. It's just up to the individual to actually go and get it, you know, and that story that Bernstein tells kind of perfectly captures that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the similarities to, so as we talked about before, this is heavily based on William Randolph Hearst. Now at the time, you know, uh, uh, Orson Welles was saying, oh, no, it's an amalgam of different people. It was William Randolph Hearst. No, no. <laughs> it was like William Randolph Hearst. Um, many things in this movie directly correlate with, with things in, in, in William Randolph Hearst's life. The most obvious one is uh, the Marion Davies character. I'm sorry, the Susan Alexander character who was supposed to be Marion Davies. Um, but also his politics in the sense that uh, – you know, we mentioned before. You know, Hearst initially started as someone who was like for the working man, for the for the uh, for the immigrants, and then later in life just became anti-union, anti-everything, and tried to push his agenda through his papers. That's exactly what Kane did in his life. Uh, it's it, like it, like with this guy, it seems like you know the Great Depression happened, but to him is like you know it didn't happen. You know, he was trying trying to live his life the exact same way that it was before the Great Depression. And then it kind of just evolved into this basically like this grumpy old guy who's against like unions, who's against, you know, you know, higher taxes, like the FDR New Deal he hated. Mm -hmm. So he kind of just evolved into this old like the, the, basically the stereotypical, you know, rich old man who doesn't want to part with his money. Right. And, you know, Hearst was very complimentary of and I think was received in Germany by Hitler. They have a scene of him of Kane with Hitler in the movie, you know, like in, uh, in the newsreel footage. Um they they say how Hearst tried to st how tried to start his own war, Kane tried to start his own war. Um, what else is there? I mean, this whole movie is just it's just oh, and even even down to like the tax problems. You know, towards the end of the movie, you see that he's losing some of his papers and things. And uh, in 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 real life, Hearst was having a lot of like tax problems, and he was actually going bankrupt uh, at the time uh, that the film was coming out. Um, it's just, it, it, I, I know that Wells is just saying that so that he wouldn't get in trouble, but that was 100% William Randolph Hearst, including 
and I'm going to try and figure out a way to say this uh, delicately, uh, including the whole point of the movie, which is the term Rosebud. Uh, Rosebud, and I wrote a status about this on Facebook the other day, is the greatest dirty joke in movie history. <laughs> right? Because for those who don't know, it was rumored that the term Rosebud was Hearst's pet name for uh, Marion Davies's private area. Nether region. Uh, her, her, her bathing suit area, if you, if you will. <laughs> um, and regardless of whether or not that's true, that that was something that he called it, the point is, is that that was the rumor and her and Kane or Kane, I mean Wells. Wells used that rumor as the ultimate inside dirty joke to put in a movie. So basically, this movie that is the greatest movie of all time, and then nineteen and, and was released in nineteen forty one to to you know to all these people in nineteen forty one featured basically is all about a, a, a dirty joke about a woman's vagina. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of amazing. When you think about it, and I mean, if we're to go by the uh, the story as RKO two eighty one tells it, I think it was uh, Mankiewicz who kind of basically because you know Roosevelt Mankiewicz was very friendly with Marion Davies. That's why he was always getting invited to like the parties at Hearst Castle, um, and he basically wrote enough stuff down about Hearst to create like his own biography about William Randolph Hearst, yeah. and that's what they kind of use uh, against him with Citizen Kane. Right, and and not just well, I mean, it was not just that. Like, so that was act, that's, that was kind of confirmed by his son uh, in the in the documentary. In the documentary, that's that, right. That he yes. did say, like, you know, he was he had, he did have a lot of material on Hearst, and he was kind of writing his own kind of unpublished biography. So that wasn't too far off from the truth. I know. So RKO two eighty one, which which is a great film, is included in the the Blu ray and DVD set. If you go out and get it, uh, it's basically a um, just a behind the scenes making of TV movie. Uh, about the making of Citizen Kane, and they go into a lot of this stuff. And, and there are obviously points where, like, okay, this was fictionalized because how does anybody know that these two people had a conversation, right? But like, for example, the, at the end of the movie, you see Wells and Hearst in, in an elevator together, which I'm sure is completely made up, right? But right, uh, I got that vibe too. <laughs> um, but uh, it's it still, I think, it, it, it used the documentary. As, as a jumping off point for a lot of things. So it, it, there are a lot of true beats in that movie. Um, so basically when the film was, when the film came out or when the film was about to come out and her and Hearst heard about it, he went into complete uh, PR attack mode. Uh, he had his, his, um, I think it's Luella Parsons or is it Hedda Hopper? One of those two. I can't remember which one. Uh, Luella Parsons was the one that worked for him. Okay, because they're both. For for those who don't know, I mean, just look up, look them up on Wikipedia or 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 or, or on the internet or Google them. They're both um, gossip columnists from that time period, and they're both two of the most despicable human beings that ever worked in Hollywood. Like they're absolutely horrible people. But <laughs> um, but they he he went to Luella Parsons to kind of get the word out that to kind of smear the movie ahead of time. Right, he put pressure on the other studios to basically try and block the movie, and the studios, even though even though there wasn't their movie, basically were like, "All right, this is not good for us because they didn't want they didn't want the general public." Remember this: there was a lot of anti-Semitic, um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in 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 America in the 1940s, and they didn't want 
the general public to find out that literally every Hollywood studio was run by Jews. And Hearst was basically threatening them with that. So he so they put pressure on RKO to say, We're all gonna we're gonna buy this movie from you and burn every print. So here's some money, uh, and give us the give us the negatives. And Wells had to fly to New York to the to the RKO stockholders and convince them not to do it. Which to me, I think in I mean, just last year we had uh, that whole incident with the movie The Interview and, and Kim Jong Il and every uh, Kim Jong Un and everything. I, I wonder if that would have happened today. I wonder if if someone that powerful could have stopped the movie from coming out. I still don't buy the whole hype around the interview anymore. I, I think it was all a big work, if you ask me. I mean, at the time I kind of believed it, but nowadays, like I, now that I'm really well, looking at it, the reason- and how like it, it basically just faded into obscurity after that first week. You know, I think it's probably all a big work. Well, the thing is, the reason why I don't think it was it was a scam is because the movie you're not going to scam a bunch of people just to ultimately release the, release the movie on YouTube, right? Like you're not going to make any money that way. They would have made more money with a general release in theaters. So to you to ultimately just put it on YouTube, that doesn't seem like a very good plan, you know? Yeah, that's why I watched it off of the uh, I watched it off of Xbox Live. That's why I first saw. I think it was like the day after it came out. It wasn't even in theaters for like maybe a month, and it was already it was gone. You know, yeah. Like I said, like it just faded into obscurity after that. So it was like you know all this hype, and then you actually watch the movies, like basically mediocre at best. Yeah. Like yeah, uh, I think I was just duped into seeing this. So so you know what I think? Here's what I think would have happened if if they would have tried if someone would have tried to pull this in twenty in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen, like the Rupert Murdoch story. Yeah. Uh, here's here's what would have happened. Someone like some studio would have blinked, and you know. And ha- and 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 agreed not to release the movie or whatever, but then someone on the inside would have leaked that to 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 Pirate Bay, and everyone would have seen it anyway. There you go. That's exactly what would have happened. <laughs> um, but not just that. He also put a lot of pressure on uh on not just the studios, but on movie theaters to. And I think basically his plan was, uh, if you do not prevent this movie from showing your movie theater, then we won't run ads for any of your movies. And no one will go see movies at your theater. Exactly what the threat was, and that's so, very, and especially around, you know, back then when they, you know, it was everybody read newspapers. That was very damaging. It was basically the same as if today they pulled all ads from like TV or or websites. You know, it's, it's the same damaging effect. You know, you know, marketing is essential to getting a film's notice out there. You know, without advertising, you know, who's going to know it's, it's out? Yeah. So especially around this time with the newspapers, that was very, very damaging. Yeah, and, and, and it still did show in some theaters, but because so many theaters just uh, elected not to show up because of that pressure, um, it, it the movie bombed spectacularly. Essentially bombed, yeah. Yeah, it was a spectacular failure at the box office. Um, but interestingly enough, it was well-received by all the critics. Uh, even the, the, the New York Film Critics Association gave it the best film of the year, you know, and other, other different critics associations also rewarded it very well. Uh, it, it was very well received because it was such an amazing piece of cinema and nothing like anybody had ever seen before. Now, keep in mind, I said critics here, not the industry. The industry was still not very happy with this movie. Um, and uh, Hearst, still on his kind of propaganda machine, kind of put the word out there that Wells was a communist. And back then, commie was a really dirty word. Right. I mean, yeah, we know that Bernie Sanders and Obama get labeled with that term now, but Im- imagine that 
times a thousand back in the 40s and 50s, and that's how bad it was back then. Um, and he, they they put out the thing that Wells is the communist, and uh, and that also kind of kind of turned the the public against it, and turned a lot of the industry against him too. So that it's interesting because the film was nominated for so many Oscars, and as I, I ran down the list at the beginning, it only won one, and that was for uh, best writing. And a lot of people think that really that was more for Mankiewicz than it was for Wells, because yeah. Mankiewicz is well liked. Um, and as I said, it lost to How Green Was My Valley, which, again, not a bad movie, but it's in the Forrest Gump slot. It's in the Rocky slot. You know, Forrest Gump gets a lot of crap because it beat Shawshank and it beat Pulp Fiction. Rocky gets a lot of uh, crap because it beat uh, Taxi Driver and Network and All the President's Men. But Rocky isn't a bad movie. Forrest Gump is a bad movie. How Green Was My Valley isn't a bad movie. It's just that the classic of that year should have won the won the the best Oscar, you know, and it didn't. Um, and after the and so much so that like the industry, which is you know the Academy is made up of members of the industry. Every time the film, like when they announced nominees for a category, the film would get booed every single time. Yeah, out. that was yeah. When I when I saw that in the documentary, that I was like, really? I mean, it's uh, it just seems. It was mostly, I think, like her slackies that were doing that. But at the same time, you know, you can understand, like, the studio was now pretty much under all this pressure now from the Hearst Empire about this film. So they were obviously not happy with Wells about it either. So, I mean, you kind of understand that. But at the same time, like, I mean, just as me, like, looking in hindsight, it's like, this is such a great movie. <laughs> You're booing it. It's just, it's just, it just doesn't correlate for me, you know. But at the time, I guess I could understand. So... Basically, after this, um, Wells was pretty much finished for a while. They they took the movie, they they kind of put it in the vault. Um, Wells went on to do Magnificent Ambersons. That was taken away from him. He went to do a couple other movies like Touch of Evil. That was taken away from him. Uh, he never actually had any control over a movie ever again. Anytime he directed a movie, almost always the production was taken away from him by the studio. Um and Touch of Evil is a great movie if you've never seen it. Yes, it is. Um, but it, and, and it's interesting because like it's not Wells's version of the movie, so it's the like, I don't think you can get Wells' version of the movie anywhere. But it, but even though it's still a good movie, you have to wonder, man, what would he have done with this then? That this is not his version, <laughs> right? You know, um, uh, and and the film just kind of faded into obscurity. But in the fifties, uh, RKO I think went out of business. Wells was there. Hearst was dead. Uh, and RKO went out of business, and they kind of sold out, sold the the movie library for for TV. And Citizen Kane just kind of was in that library, and it started getting re, getting rebroadcast on television, and people started seeing it again. And once people started seeing it again, it kind of inspired all these journalists and filmmakers and 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 um, uh, uh, movie critics to rediscover the film. And kind of give it its place in history. So that by the time the 60s and 70s rolled around and film school started popping up, it was regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. And it influenced an entire generation of filmmakers. Yeah, like you said, like the 60s and 70s was really when you started seeing the film go into like the number two or even the number one, you know, greatest American film ever made. Which, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, it's debatable whether it deserves that or not. But... It wasn't until like the late fifties where it started getting screened again, and then and late and then early sixties and then early seventies, you started really getting the full appreciation for it, and you started seeing the acclaim come out 
for this film. Which which makes you wonder, like, how many movies, like, can you think of in like in your lifetime, in that that have been around since you've been alive, that came out and failed spectacularly, but like. How many of those do you think will go on like 40 years later to become all-time classics? Like the only one I can think of now off the top of my head is Blade Runner, which when it came out was a huge failure, but is now, you know, 30 some years later right. considered a, a science fiction classic, you know? Like it's really hard to imagine, but that's essentially what happened here. Yeah. I mean, you take like the modern flops and that they're, they're flops, deservedly so, but it's like with this one – you know, it's it's different, and it's just kind of hard to just picture with with any modern flop that this would happen. Yeah. Well, it also, ha- I think it also happened to Fight Club, too. I think Fight Club is another one of those movies that I think now, 15 years later, or however many years later, people love. But when it came out, that movie bombed, and it was actually not well-reviewed from what I remember. Uh, see, because I was like when I was – like I. Didn't pay any minds movies like this at the time. I was probably like, wouldn't it come like 2000? 99, 2000, something like that. Yeah. I, I think 99. I, was, I think 99. Yeah. I was still not into movies like that at the time, so I didn't even pay attention. Like, I remember it coming out and then just not caring. You know? See, it I came think I was out, probably like maybe 15 years old. This, this is what I remember about Fight Club. The first time I ever saw anything about Fight Club um, was it, it was one of the trailers in front of Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. Uh, and I remember seeing that trailer. I'm like, what is that? That looks weird. Brad Pitt? Oh, who cares about Brad Pitt? You know? And that was like, that was just a weird trailer. And then I never heard about it again until it's I... It's super weird to put it in front of Star Wars. It was really just... weird to put it in front of Star Wars. And then I didn't hear about it again until like uh, a year later. Um, my So my, my college, I went to Penn State, and they, they did this really super illegal thing where um, they had a channel... On, on like the student like student TV network where it just ran like recent movies but I don't think they actually paid any rights for them because they don't nice. the channel only <laughs> lasted like a year and I think that because they somebody realized wait we're not paying for this that's not right and we should shut it down but for like a year they had all these like so I remember watching like American Beauty on there I remember watching the Matrix on there uh, awesome. and, and the Fight Club was on there at one point yeah and I and I, I sat and watched it once and then after I watched it, I was like what what the hell did I just watch? And it was, and I can see why that movie failed so spectacular. I'm not saying Fight Club's on the same level as Citizen Kane, but Fight Club has now reached the status as like this modern classic, right? And but it was a movie that really spectacularly failed when it initially came out. So getting back to Kane, um, it just kind of makes you wonder how many how many times that that happens where a movie just doesn't resonate with an audience and then just gets rediscovered like 20 years later and becomes this this huge thing. I mean, it happened with It's a Wonderful Life as well. That's true. That was, I remember hearing the story. It's one of those like major flops. And then when it started getting screened by NBC, like every Christmas, that's when it started getting its its following after that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, Kane became such an enormous failure. It was such an enormous failure. It became such a, a modern, not a modern, but a a classic film, the greatest film, according to many, many people. And I, I, I've, I've often said to me, Casablanca is the greatest film of all time. But if someone argues that Citizen Kane is, I can't really argue it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't because it is such, there's nothing wasted in that movie. Everything from from the first frame to the last frame is just expertly crafted and 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 uh and realized that i i can't argue that it's the greatest film of all time um 
And every time I watch it, I get something new out of it, you know? Uh, I, I just get a new appreciation for that movie every time. But you know what? <laughs> There's one thing about that movie that I every now and then, like I, uh, I'll just say it in like modern life, like in, in actual real life, that nobody understands. And it's every now and then, like I just go, "Hooray for the bulldog!" And people just look at me like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> like you just belt it out randomly it seems well like when someone is like really proud of themselves for something like like oh well hooray for the bulldog nice. <laughs> and they just look at me like what? what no to date nobody really gets un- uh understands what the hell i'm talking about when i say it but every, because it's one of those things when you're like a movie movie dork like i am i, I will just randomly put in like movie quotes into things whenever like that whenever i get when i hear a prompt like to this day i will still go if someone goes hey man so what's going on what's the plan i will go well it's simple we uh kill the batman kill batman <laughs> and then they just look at me like you are such a nerd <laughs> but sometimes i do alter it with uh crashing this plane with no survivors and then they they even they that one is not as well known yeah right <laughs> uh i don't do the bane voice because if i did the bane voice they'd be like okay get away from me you're a freak well, I don't think that voice suits you anyway. So, <laughs> even um, for Tom Hardy. Oh come on, everyone! I don't care what anybody says. If you like that movie, at some point when you've been alone, you've practiced that voice by yourself. <laughs> you, you've put your hand up You're to not your lying mouth. There, you put your or, or put a cup over your mouth or something to muffle your voice, and then try to do that accent. And everyone's done it. I don't care who you are. If you've been like alone in a car or something, you've done that voice. I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway, uh, any any final thoughts on Citizen Kane here? Um, I mean, what else could really be? I think we pretty much covered it all. I mean, this is a film that is really the perfect mix of everything. Great performances, great cinematography, great score, a story that's timeless, I think. And you just have everything going right for this film. I mean, not behind the scenes, but it's like when everything came, when it's all said and done, when every, what came out on the screen is as perfect a film as anybody could ask for, which is why I feel that it definitely deserves that acclaim against because it really is, you get the best of everything as far as movie movie making goes in this film. I can't argue that at all. Every Absolutely, 100%. Um, everything, everything you just said, you know, that it's the greatest movie of all time by many people, including probably both of us. Uh, it's endlessly rewatchable. And, you know, my wife actually hasn't ever seen it, but um, she was like, she was kind of coming in and out of the room as I was watching RKO 281 and then kind of asking me like, you know, different questions. Um, which by the way, let's talk about that movie just a little bit real quick. Um, yeah. Oh, it, with, with the alpha. James Cromwell and Lee Schreiber, of course. Yes, and 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 John Malkovich, who, who and, and oh Johnny Malkovich, bro. John Malkovich, uh, like now, you know Lee Schreiber doesn't really look like Orson Welles at all, but he plays him so well in this movie. Like it, 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 you kind of just forget about that. Uh, James Cromwell is awesome as Hearst, and my favorite point in that, my favorite part of that movie is the very end. Um, well, two two of my favorite parts. One is whenever. That the fictionalized thing where Hurst and Wells are in the elevator and and Wells just offers them a movie ticket to see the movie, which I think like if that would have <laughs> happened, if that if that actually happened, like if if Wells and Hurst were in an elevator, I absolutely believe that Orson Wells would have totally done that. 
Oh, I, I believe it too. Absolutely believe he would have done How the guy was. And and then what I love about that is when when Hearst walks out of the elevator, he goes, Kane would have taken the ticket. <laughs> but you would have. <laughs> Kane would have taken the ticket. Um, I love that moment. But my favorite moment actually is at the very, very end when the whenever you see Mank uh uh Wells and the Schaefer by by yeah. other uh, another Alpha Roy Roy Schneider. Um yes. He, they're sitting there like right at the premiere and they're all just kind of talking about it and then like people are kind of going starting to file into the theater and Mankiewicz is just like it's the sled <laughs> he just <laughs> blow, he sled. just spoiling the ending for people Rosebud is the sled <laughs> Rosebud is the sled it's the sled it's like stop it like yeah they're gonna hate it anyway yeah <laughs> bro what a great performance by Malkovich bro he's yeah. probably my favorite character in the whole movie yeah that's a great that's a great performance so go out of your way to watch that movie it's actually really entertaining there are, again you can you can tell there's stuff that they fictionalize but all like the major plot points all the major events are actually true to life uh and it's kind of fascinating but it, it's it's such an amazing film uh and if you watch it you'll just you can just see how much it influenced pretty much anybody any director that you that you've ever watched that you like, I guarantee you has been influenced by Orson Welles and by this movie. I guarantee it. It's the movie. The movie is so ahead of its time that if you released that movie now, if like it didn't have any, if this movie had no buildup and it didn't exist and you released that movie now in 2016, it would still have the same impact. Like people would still love it. It would look amazing and it would look, it would still look ahead of its time. Yeah. Yeah. What do you say ahead of its time, man? When talking about this movie, this really, I mean, everything that it innovated, it, it was just, you know, like I already mentioned, it's really like the, the perfect mix of everything. And then when you take into account also, like, you know, the uh, the story behind this film and like the the hurdles they have to get to just to even get to theaters, it just makes the it makes it kind of takes the story that's already kind of takes this film. I mean, that's already at like, you know, a high in my opinion, at least a high stature and it kind of pushes it into like that mythic atmosphere. You know, it's just, man, what, what a great movie. What a great story behind it. It's just, you know, everything just came together to just create this film. And, you know, I think not just Hollywood, but filmmaking in general is better off for it. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a good place to end. So after all this, where can you watch this movie? Well, uh, it's not streaming for free anywhere, but you can rent or purchase it digitally through iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, or Sony Entertainment. Uh, you can buy the DVD or Blu-ray. Um, it's uh, I, I would recommend personally the seventy-fifth, sorry, the seventieth anniversary Blu-ray, which you and I both have. That includes the movie, includes uh, RKO two eighty-one, and it includes the Battle Over Citizen Kane documentary. It might have a couple other, and it includes the Roger Ebert commentary. Yes, it does, and and there's also a commentary by Peter Bogdanovich uh, oh, yeah. that I have not watched yet, but I, I am looking forward to that. And too. Bogdanovich he was all over the documentary. Yeah, that's actually probably I haven't actually heard that one, but that's probably a really good one to listen to because Bogdanovich actually became friends with uh, Wells later in life, so that's probably very interesting to listen to. Um, so yeah, so that's a that's a really good thing. I wonder if they're gonna do anything for the 75th anniversary and try to double make the fans double dip a little probably. because yeah, I wouldn't 26, be past. 2016 is its 75th anniversary, so. I wonder. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but the other thing, too, that kind of, and this is a perfect way to close, too, like when they talked about in Battle Over Citizen King, which, by the way, also, if you're, those who don't know, that was the basis for the RKO 281 uh, film. Right. Um, and nominated for its own Oscar. That was nominated for Best Documentary. It didn't win, but it, it, when it came, that was nominated for Best Documentary by the Oscars. 
But like the uh, documentary says, you know, in the end, you know, this battle over <laughs> over Citizen Kane, like Wells really didn't win because after this film, he pretty much his career was over at that point. You know, Hearst was pretty much dead, I think, within the, maybe five years after this film anyway. So like he lost Wells lost. The only thing that really won was the film because the film was able to be I mean, we still talk about Citizen Kane. Obviously, we're doing a whole show about it. You know, this is a film that Hearst thought would fade into obscurity that. Wells probably thought would now fade into obscurity, that the studio thought would fade into obscurity, and now here it is, you know, it's lasted so long and it's now such a held high acclaim, it's really the only survivor of this battle. Yeah, um, it's, and it's a shame, too, that Orson Welles didn't have a, a bigger career in the end, because he was such a great actor and such an obviously talented director, um, but, I mean, he... I mean, he still had a good movie. He still had a good, you know, filmography. Like you said, Touch of Evil is really good. Um, uh, Magnificent Ambersons was good. I just saw him in the movie, uh, actually, on, on TCM. He did an adaptation of Jane Eyre, which is actually pretty good. Uh, and, of course, the ultimate, the Transformers, the movie in 1986. Did he want to do, like, he wanted to do, like, uh, the Jesus, right? After, after yes, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. He he wanted to do The Life of Jesus with him starring as Jesus. <laughs> And, and then the ego on this guy. I know. Bro. I love it. I love the balls. I love the balls. Uh, and uh, at in the end of the day, um, yeah, RK was like, "Yeah, we're not doing that, and we're not doing anything else with you." But he did narrate the uh, greatest story ever told. I think right with with uh, Von Sydow. I think right. Did he, he narrate that? Pieces? I never actually. I don't think I've yeah, ever he, seen. He definitely was a narrator. I'm I, I just want to make sure that's the right film. Greatest story ever told that he did. Um. um not a hundred percent on that, but I think that's the one. It's the one with Max von Sydow as Jesus. Okay. Well, he also did. He also did the Lady from Shanghai. Great movie, Macbeth. Um, he he did. He directed Macbeth. He did Third Man, which is an excellent movie that we'll talk about on this show at some point. Uh, is Macbeth? Or sorry. Um. Uh, what did I just say? The Third Man. Uh, yeah. Lots lots of uh, Shakespeare adaptations. He's in The Man for All Seasons. It's an Oscar winning film. That's a great. It's a great movie. movie. It's a great movie. Um. And yeah, his last role was, as I said before. Oh, he's also he also had a he also had a cameo in the Muppet movie. Uh, he was at the very end of the Muppet movie, <laughs> which I, which I think is hilarious. Um, and yeah, last role I believe was as the voice of Unicron in the Transformers movie in 1986, which is really kind of sad. Uh, uh, yeah, but oh well. Um, but that, yeah, that film is still better than the Michael Bay one. So. Oh, I'd rather watch that thing over Michael Bay's movies any day. Absolutely. There you go. Um. So yeah, that that does it uh, for Citizen Kane. We're gonna close the book on that excellent film. Obviously, we both heartily recommend it. Um, for our next episode, which I'm not sure when we'll record, but for our next episode, I am thinking we will do The Godfather. Oh, all right, that is a great pick. You didn't use a tumbler to pick that, did you? Uh, no, I didn't use a tumbler. But here's 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 why. It's because when I started the show, I wanted to start with my favorite movie of all time, which is Casablanca. Then I wanted to go into uh, the second greatest, or the, the what everyone considers the greatest movie is Citizen Kane. But in my uh, in my esteem, like the three greatest movies of all time are Casablanca, Citizen Kane, and The Godfather. And wow. I wanted to get like my holy trinity out there for the first three episodes. So we'll do The Godfather, and then maybe we'll do a little more random. Uh, we'll pick some more random movies, but the, but here and there. But uh, now so here's that, my question. For this for this episode, are we gonna watch the seven hour HBO Godfather Godfather two version? No, we could just watch the regular the regular version. 
Because I'm prepared to watch that. I have it on my watch list on my HBO app. And, and we'll only go. do Godfather 1, because if we did Godfather 1 and 2, it would take, like, I think we'd... we'd It'd be like a four-hour show. It would, it would be a four-hour show. It would be longer than the movies themselves. So, yeah, um, so that's that's the next episode of The Godfather. Um, you can find... You can, uh, Find us at the EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Right now, I have uh, I'm actually have some new articles up there. I have a, a new entry on the Superman the movie. Um, I also have a, a little article uh, kind of uh, in in the wake of David Bowie's passing. I have a little article talking about his, his best movie roles. Um, Labyrinth is there. Labyrinth is definitely in there. <laughs> All right. Great movie. Um, I just picked act- that up recently. What's that? I just picked that up recently. Mondo had the uh, – I think it's spine number 16 on the Mondo Steelbook set. So that's oh. the most recent one that just came out, so I picked that up. I have that on a, a, a double edition Blu-ray with that and the Dark Crystal. Um, and it, they, they actually look really beautiful on Blu-ray. So I would – you guys should check those out. And also check out the, the Bowie article that I wrote. Um, you can like The Essential Films on Facebook. Just search for The Essential Films. And you can follow me on Twitter at – essential films uh please like rate review and subscribe to us on itunes we are on itunes and we also host a show as we mentioned at the top of the show called force perspective that you can also like rate review and subscribe to us on itunes we just put up a couple new episodes uh one is the last episode where we where we wrap up the summer of 2015 uh for the fantastic four of you alone please listen (laughs) uh but but that's one of the greatest things we've ever done so, as you may have known, as you probably noticed, this is a very family-friendly show. We didn't really drop any swear words. But if you're listening to Force Perspective, uh, earmuffs on the kitties, especially during that Fantastic Four review, because I'm not kind to it. Um, <laughs> and I didn't actually realize – so I actually just re-listened to that episode, um, and I was like, I do not – I mean, I remember being that, being that mad about it, but I didn't realize I went – I ranted that long on that movie because we I ranted. Did, it's like it forty like, minutes, almost right? an hour. I just saw that movie. <laughs> anyway, force perspective, like, rate, review, and subscribe to it on iTunes as well. And also, the Back to the Future episode just went up. Yeah, the first of three. Which I mean, we still have to record three, <laughs> so well, we'll we got to get. Well, we will do that. Yeah, but, we, but... we definitely got to get on that. I mean, but big things coming for Force Perspective, you know. We got some plans in the works for stuff we want to do already. You know, we are going to start a YouTube channel soon, start putting the shows there. So, you know, it's, it's very exciting for us right now. So, you know, definitely check that out. And uh, we will um, – and Force Perspective is more of a uh, modern films, like current films still in theaters, except for the Back to the Future episode, obviously. Uh, but – and this this show is going to be more about the classics. Um but uh, I'm sure we will get to as as we re- as we record this episode. It is the weekend that the movie Deadpool came out. We both have our opinions of that. I'm sure we'll share them on an upcoming Force Perspective episode. Absolutely. Uh, got but, the Oscars coming up. We, gotta, we got the Oscars coming up. But we have plenty of stuff to talk about then. So yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of stuff coming down the pipe on Force Perspective as well. Um, uh, Mark, before we go, where can we find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter at SportsGuy515. That's my name on Force Perspective that I use. So uh, that's my moniker, I guess. So you can find me there. You know, follow me. Uh, I'm also planning on starting a Twitter for the show itself, just like with the YouTube, and uh, doing a Facebook page for it as well. So once that's up, we'll probably make an announcement on the next show or whenever it's up. So you can uh, start following uh, Force Perspective there. But uh, as far as me right now, it's just the Twitter handle right now, at SportsGuy515. And uh, also a, a shout out to our, our our buddies over at superfriendsuniverse.com, which uh, we will we are associated with and sometimes write articles for. 
Well, I haven't written an article there in like probably two years. Yeah, I mean, your last one was the Fantastic Four. Really. That was the last one I did. But we're still <laughs> we're still associated as long as you know yes. as long as that lasts. We're still associated with them. So please go go over there and, and give them some uh, some web pages as well. All right, so that'll do it for us this week. Uh, next time we'll come back with the Godfather. We'll make you an offer you can't refuse. So uh, for Mark, this is Adolfo, and this has been the Essential Films Podcast. What have you been doing all this time? Playing with a jigsaw puzzle? If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything. No, I don't think so. No. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. Missing piece. Well, come on, everybody. We'll miss the train.